The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It would be fun to spend one Easter morning talking about all the historical evidence for the resurrection, all the reasons why it's believable. The resurrection was a miracle, but it happened in real time, and its historical footprint is actually quite big. And the reasons, the historical reasons for believing it are formidable. Paul marshals in one of the best forms of ancient evidence in 1 Corinthians when he talks to the skeptical Corinthians about all the eyewitnesses. Eyewitness testimony was the gold standard of how history was done and reporting was done before the age of cameras and iPhones and the cloud. And Paul even lets us know that a lot of these eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, they're still alive. They're like living footnotes in a paper. Go track them down. Ask Bob. Ask Cindy. They saw him. So Paul says to the skeptical Corinthians, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. After his 800-page study of the topic, this topic of the resurrection, uh, leading historian N.T. Wright concludes that the resurrection is the only explanation that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. And it would be fun to spend the rest of our time exploring all these historical evidences that really make it hard to deny that in the first century, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. It would be fun to explore all these facts. But we aren't going to do that this Easter. 
And the reason we're not going to do that is because of an article I read recently. And it was an article about religious trends among modern people. And the author pointed out that with young people in particular, even when they were surveyed and asked, if you were convinced that the resurrection was a historical fact, how would it change your life? And many of them said, it wouldn't change it at all. Even if it was a fact, who cares? That's your truth. It's helpful for you. It doesn't have any impact on me. You see, facts don't change people. And in a day and age when truth is relative and facts are typically suspect, we simply need to grapple with more than historical data points when we think about the resurrection. We have to move past the if question, if it happened. It did, and all Christians believe that. But we have to move past asking if it happened to the more fundamental question, which is why did it happen? Or maybe more, more fundamentally, why does it matter? Does it have any relevance for you? Any relevance for me? And I think a helpful way to pose that question this Easter would be to try to imagine what would happen if Jesus were to appear, as he appeared to so many people in Paul's day, if he were to appear to one of us. So imagine with me, if you will, what would happen if Jesus appeared to some of our friends? What would he say? What would happen? First, let's think about our friend Jess. You know Jess. After attending a prestigious New England college, she went on and got a master's degree in public health. Her studies have only heightened her awareness of the many things wrong in the world, especially in the case of people being oppressed. And she has come to dedicate her life to working against injustice. Jess is smart, she's honest, and she's focused. She's so focused that her friends have taken to calling her, affectionately, Jess the Just. But as Jess begins to get involved in global work against injustice, she's running into a complex problem. First, she, she's realizing that to uphold this idea of justice out in the world requires her to have some idea of right and wrong. I mean, you can no more win at a game that doesn't have rules or judge a singer to be on pitch without a scale than you can talk about injustice without morality. You see, Jess has been taught to be a little more relativistic with truth claims from her professors. Don't push your ideas on people, Jess. Different cultures have different ways of thinking about things. She loves this idea. But it just so happens that as she goes into the world to advocate for justice, she has to force on other people her idea of right and wrong. So when it comes to her notion that people should be loving and fair, they ought to take responsibility for the weak and the vulnerable, she thinks everybody has to believe this. And you see... In her quest for justice, Jess has become quite moralistic. And this is where her problem thickens. As she goes into the world and engages, she's learning a sobering lesson. She's finding 
disappointingly, that even the oppressed, when they are then given an opportunity and liberated, can turn around and oppress. While she imagined the world would simply be divided between the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the oppressors and the oppressed, she's finding a far more complicated terrain. And she's coming to believe that there are not only oppressive systems, which there are, she's coming to see that something lies behind them, beneath them, something she can only call a twisted human heart. Worse still, the things Jess loathes about the world, prejudice, hate, selfishness, pride, irritability, she's beginning to see these things surface in her own heart as she engages hard to love people. In his book, Swan's Way, Marcel Proust recounts growing up in French high society in the 19th century. Proust's family had servants. And one of the favorites was Francoise. This woman, she was a chef. She'd bring him cozy hot water bottles and make his favorite food when he was younger. He says she would have given her life without a murmur for any member of this family. But when a lowly kitchen maid turns up pregnant, Francoise disdains her and can only show her cruelty. Proust He reflects on this, and in doing so, he captures something perplexing about human nature. He writes, I gradually came to see that the gentleness, the virtues of Francoise concealed tragedies of character. Just as history reveals that the reigns of kings and queens who are portrayed with their hands joined in church windows were also marked by bloody incidents. I realized that apart from Francois's own relatives, human beings inspired her with more pity for their afflictions the farther away from her they lived. Jess is discovering a sobering truth. It's one thing to love humanity as an abstract idea. It's a very different thing to love a real person. When up close and personal with people or when reading about our own heroes in depth, we come to see that what's wrong with the world isn't necessarily out there, but it's in here. There's something wrong with us. Morality, you see, for Jess, caring about justice and right and wrong, it was was functioning like an x-ray machine on the human heart. If we're honest, Jess found... We're all guilty of wrongdoing, selfishness, a lack of heroic love. It just presents itself in different ways in different people, largely due to the randomness randomness of circumstance. She wants to throw in the towel. This is a problem that can't be fixed. Everyone's guilty. It's not even worth it. But before she throws in the towel, Jesus appears to her. What might he say? What would he say to Jess the just? He doesn't rebuke her for loving justice. He says, you know, you were made in the image of a righteous God. And it is in your nature, deep down, to hate wrong and love right. But Jesus goes on to explain to her about the human plight. 
that all of us have sinned and this infection, this evil infection is inside all of us. And this means, Jess, that the work for justice must be balanced by another power. What power is that, Jesus? That power is mercy. Now, Jesus goes on to explain there is only one way to go into the world and uphold perfect justice on the one hand and liberating deep mercy on the other. And to show her what this one thing is, he takes her to Paul's summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. It's so tight. It's so simple. He just says, look, 1 Corinthians 15. Look at this, Jess. It says, Christ died for our sins. He was buried he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jess, let me explain what this means. My death on a cross, Jess, is God's display to you that he cares about justice. What was happening on the cross was I was paying the penalty being punished for the injustice of the world. God won't brush anything under the rug. Just as a human judge in a human court has to come up with a penalty that fits the crime, say five years in prison, and the culprit has to serve that time, five years in prison. And once the culprit does, the jail can open and they can go free. So too, God has determined that there's a penalty for sin. Do you know what it is? It's death. It's a life sentence. Death. So Jesus says, just, I've paid that penalty. That's why I just don't hang on the cross for three hours. I have to die. But the tomb opening is like a jail cell opening saying he's paid the penalty. The debt's paid. He can go free. And he says, so you have justice being upheld here, Jess. I'm paying the righteous penalty. But Jess, here's what you need to see. That I will take your sins, your guilt, your infractions on myself on that cross. If you will receive me, I will take these on myself and I will pay your penalty. And in exchange for your sins, I will offer you forgiveness and mercy. Jesus says, Jess, that's what Paul refers to as grace later in the passage. Only in Jesus can the world find a way to uphold perfect justice and at the same time extend mercy and forgiveness to all those, all of us, who are unjust. Now, how does this impact Jess? Well, it not only frees her from the nagging awareness of her own imperfection and her own guilt, she doesn't have to go be a hypocrite anymore. She can confess it to the Lord. But it also sends her back into the world with a deeper power. Not just the abstract sense of right and wrong. Not just advocating for justice, which God clearly loves. Look at the cross. But with a message of Jesus that not only advocates for justice, but it also holds out mercy to all those people who haven't lived up to the world's standards of right and wrong, let alone God's standards of right and wrong. The only way Jess can avoid being crushed by morality on the one hand or having to live in the unsatisfying world of moral relativism, just brush it under the rug. We couldn't be good enough anyway. The only way she can avoid these two things is in Jesus. So for Jess the just, Jesus is the answer. Next, Jesus appears to a middle-aged man named Ryan. Ryan kind of snickers at Jess. He thinks her biggest problem is that she's young. 
He says, give her a few decades. She'll wear out of fixing the world. Ryan has a very different life philosophy. He says, look, life is about charting your own course, minding your own business. People's problems aren't your problems. But above all, it's about finding ultimate fulfillment. And while for some, fulfillment may come in serving their country or their political party or serving a cause, Ryan says, no, no, no. Ultimate fulfillment for me comes in romance. That all-consuming connection with the other, with the lover. Ryan's friends call him affectionately Ryan the Romantic. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker, himself not religious, he, he studies more, uh, modern man, modern humanity, and he asks what happens when we reject God as the source of our deepest meaning. And he suggests we replace God with romance. We've rejected God, but yet we still need to feel that life matters. We need to feel that we're good. We need to feel that we're made for something really special. We still need to be connected with something higher than us. And if we no longer have God, what do we turn to? He answers, one of the first ways that occurred to modern humanity was the romantic solution. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in on the love partner. He refers to this as apocalyptic romance. Now you'll think that's extreme. Well, don't. Just think of some of our music lyrics. You'd be like heaven to touch from the hit Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. Or the Dixie Chicks. Cowboy, take me away closer to heaven, closer to you. Or more recently, a song I hate. <laughs> Hosier's hit Take Me to Church. He says, my lover's got humor. I should have worshipped her sooner. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. You see, humans are hardwired to connect with something or someone to fulfill us. And whatever object we seek for ultimate fulfillment, we come to worship. And we worship anything other than God. The Bible calls this idolatry. And when idolatry is going on, we turn a really good thing into a God. Well, it's not good for the idolater because the thing can't ultimately satisfy us. But it's terrible for the idol. The mere, mere person in your life that you're actually asking to be God to you. To bear the weight of your soul. So Ryan is walking into this trap. Jesus appears to him. What might Jesus say to Ryan? Jesus would not rebuke Ryan for desiring fulfillment. He wouldn't. Nor would he say that Ryan's instincts, that fulfillment will come through some form of a relationship, a deep connection, nor would he say this is off base. Jesus would explain, Ryan, you're created in the image of a relational God. You're hardwired for a connection with another in order to feel whole. But Jesus would go on to explain to Ryan that along with your physical and emotional nature, you have a spiritual nature. And this spiritual nature needs, like a fish needs water, it needs connection with God. That's simply how it's made. It's a non-negotiable fact of your hardwiring. And Jesus would explain, look, another tragedy of sin, along with Jess's stuff that she's working through with the tragedy of guilt and injustice, another tragedy of sin 
It's one great cosmic broken relationship. Ryan, you have been cut off from a relationship with your Father, your Heavenly Father, your Maker. And this is the gaping, agonizing need beneath all the unmet needs you find in all the best relationships in the world. They're really good, but they're still not fixing you. And Jesus would say, you don't understand, Ryan, I came to bear the hell of that great disconnection for you. On the cross, when I cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was bearing the brunt of that wrecked relationship, the utter aloneness and abandonment and emptiness that sinners deserve. But I did it, Ryan, so that you no longer have to. And now I can offer you a fixed relationship with God. The Bible calls this reconciliation. I can show you, Ryan, through me how to be reconciled with the one relationship that will finally, ultimately, and eternally satisfy you. For just the just, Jesus was the answer. And so too, is he the answer for Ryan the Romantic? One more friend to meet. Darcy. Darcy has lived a full life. And she's older now. And she lives in a retirement community. And the, the past few years have been hard for her. Um, there's been declining health, declining energy, and there's been death. So much death. Mo most of her close friends have passed. And so has her beloved husband. Darcy doesn't have energy to go work for justice. And the days of romance have passed for her. She feels overlooked in a world that prizes the young. She feels invisible. She's alone and death is looming. And when she thinks about dying, she's scared. Darcy is Darcy the despairing. Ernest Becker goes on in his book, The Denial of Death, to describe how impossible it is for modern people to deal with death. The idea of death, he writes, the fear of it, it haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome death by denying it. But see, the problem is Darcy can't deny it anymore. Death has entered the room. It's at her bedside. It's reaching out for her hand. When... Um, when I was ordained as a minister, I was just 28. It's probably too young to be a pastor. And, you know, pastoral work, it, it brings you into proximity with death in various ways and very quickly. And, and I could just remember many times whether it was leaving a hospital or um, leaving a funeral, thinking about the finality of death and how it impacts the loved ones who are still here. And you can't help but sometimes, if you'll just allow yourself to sit and think for a moment, that death really does sweep everything away. If that's all there is, it really does make all the efforts you're making to fix this world, to fix your life, everything you're doing for your kids, all of it, it just makes it meaningless. A cosmic nothingness. This is why Paul says in this chapter in 1 Corinthians that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. So what might Jesus say to Darcy if he came and sat at our bedside? He'd say, it's not wrong that you're afraid of death. It's not wrong. Darcy, this is not the way things were supposed to be. You were made in the image, you see, of the God of life. 
And death is the complete antithesis of that. And I hate it. And it's a consequence of sin. But I died for you and I have swallowed up death and it has lost its sting. And he might speak to her the way he did to Martha. His friend Martha, remember her when her brother Lazarus had died and she was so distraught? Jesus would reach out and take her hand. Maybe he'd take Darcy's hand and say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I picture Darcy Darcy grasping the Lord's hand and answering, like Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And for Darcy, as for all Jesus' people, death becomes merely the passing through a thin veil. It's simply a doorway that opens for you where you go from faith to sight. You go from hope to embrace. You're walked into a room to meet your great friend, the lover of your soul, Jesus. For Darcy the despairing, Jesus is the only answer. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that God took on flesh and rose from the dead? Why does it matter? So your care for justice can have any meaning at all. And so that your longing for connection can one day actually be satisfied. And so that death doesn't wipe away every hope you've ever had. That's why it matters. So let me ask you, have you met Jesus? Have you encountered this man? Has he made his way into your life? Jesus can be found by everyone who humbly seeks him. Everyone who admits they're not perfect, but a sinner, admits they need help and forgiveness, and is willing to surrender their life to him. Let me close with a story. This is a true story about a a middle-aged woman, a gifted lawyer, who met Jesus in middle age. Diane is her name, and she was a friend of my mom's, and they knew each other through work. And Diane, she knew the basic contours of what the Christian religion was, but she had a lot of questions about it. And she would engage my mom in conversations about her faith, my mom's faith. And what Diane wanted to know really was, what does it mean to actually know God? Can you know him? Does does Jesus actually affect your life? Is he real? And she asked my mom one day, how can I know? Never mind all the evidence, how can I know? My mom said, just ask him. And what she meant by that was, start praying tonight and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. You know the scriptures, you're seeing these things. Ask him to reveal himself to you. So the very next morning, Diane does something she's done hundreds of times. She goes to the courthouse to file legal papers. And she's the first one in, no one else is there, and she walks up to the counter, and it's totally bare except for a single slip of paper. She walks up, and she looks down at the paper, and it's the sinner's prayer. Do you know what the sinner's prayer is? It's a very basic prayer. It walks a person through how they would come to Jesus. They repent of their sins, they confess their sins, and they ask Jesus into their life to be their Lord and Savior. She was shocked to see this on the counter right in front of her. So she asked the clerk, How did this get here? He didn't know. And then she asked if if she could take it. And the clerk said, sure. And Diane thought, as she relayed the story to my mom, what is God doing? 
She sensed that God wasn't wasting any time letting her know that he was there. He was seeking her even while she had been seeking him. And that Sunday, she went on her way to the horse barn. She drove to the horse barn. This is something she did every Sunday. She went horseback riding. So she had her horseback riding clothes on. And as she was driving to the barn, she passed a church. She always drove past along the way. And she sensed God telling her, you need to stop and go back and go into that church. So she stops. She turns around. She goes back right there in her horse clothes, walks in mid-service. And in that church and with those people, she found what her heart was looking for. You know, Diane would go on to become the director of children's ministry in that church and a close friend of the pastor. Friends, God works in many different ways, but Jesus is alive. That's why Diane could meet him. He is alive. He died for your sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day. He knows your needs, the real ones, and he hears your heart's aches and longings and he stands ready to come into your life not just as a historical fact but as your savior and friend as the answer to your deepest questions and longings amen